Hosea chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 10 through 17 this evening. Both the passages, uh, morning and evening today, uh, have been very difficult, and you'll see that uh, as we read verses 10 through 17, but uh, every word of God is God-breathed, so, and we, as we go through book by book, we can't just avoid things, so uh, verses 10 through 17, no children for the abominable. So let's begin reading at verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as, as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. My God will cast them away because they did not obey him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we know how serious idolatry is, but yet we truly do not fathom how, uh, how heinous it truly is. We do not truly know uh, what our sin deserves, and yet we are thankful for what your word reveals concerning Christ and what he has done, what your word reveals concerning sin and what it deserves, and we are thankful that we are children of God, and we are thankful that we bear fruit in Christ, who is the true vine. And yet, nonetheless, we still must consider the seriousness of what it means to do abominable things. And so we ask tonight that you would be with us, that you would give us your spirit once again to better illumine our hearts and minds concerning sin and concerning its seriousness, that we might be ever watchful in our remaining corruption against our own idolatry. And we are thankful that we can bring those things that we make as idols to the foot of Christ and we're thankful because of his sufficient and completed work, we can smash those idols before him. And we are thankful that we truly have turned from our idols to the true and living God. And we ask and pray uh, that we continue to put to death the deeds of the flesh, that we would put to death those things that are idolatrous. And we are thankful that all our sins are forgiven in Christ, past, present, and future. So we, again, we pray that you give us aid from on high. Please help us to understand what your word says. We pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please show them the terror of idolatry and the terror of what idolatry brings, that they might find mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we are thankful for his finished work. We are thankful for what he does for undeserving people like us. And so be with us now by your spirit, we pray. And we pray that you be honored and glorified in all things. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we reject the notion of generational sin, that is, certain sins that are passed from one generation to another generation. But we can't deny that the apple doesn't always fall far from the tree, not because of generation, but because of observation, because of nurture. That is a problem today, and that is a problem for Israel as a nation. The people have always been a stiff-necked people. The people has always gone after abominable things uh, by way, with what we see in the Old 
Testament. Israel has always gone after idols. They did it as soon as they came up out of the land of Egypt. They did it throughout the, the, this time of the kings. And they did it at the time of Jesus as well, which leads to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And certainly as we consider the prophet Hosea, he's prophesying to that northern kingdom. And there was no good king in Israel in the northern kingdom. Remember, this is the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And there was no good king. Israel continually went after the Baals. Israel continually went after idolatrous things and vile and wretched and abominable things. And so God, according to the terms of the old covenant, is going to vomit Israel out of the land. He's also going to vomit Judah out of the land as well because of the heinous things that they engage in. And the main message of the book is what we see at the beginning. We see this marriage. We see uh, this spiritual adultery, this picture of spiritual adultery by way of actual adultery, as Hosea has to go and take a wife of harlotry. We see what Yahweh will do to an adulterous wife in judgment, but there's also encouragement when it comes to restoration as well. But tonight it's a lot of judgment uh, with what we see in verse uh, chapter 9. And so we're still in that section that deals with a forgetful people. They're a fair weather people. They're an ignorant people. They're an unaware people. And we saw their unawareness in the festivals that they celebrated. We saw that in chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, how the people went up to a festival. They went up to celebrate, but in reality, they were engaging in wickedness and harlotry, and there was no time to rejoice. And their joy continues to manifest their ignorance of what the real problem is. And the real problem is their idolatry, their wickedness, their violations of the covenant that God had made with them. And so then we come perhaps to a new-ish section or a new subsection in verses 10 through 17, uh, but there's a lot of repetition. We need to be reminded they're the same sins that happen over and over again, and we need to be reminded of those same sins over and over again. So the same issues, same warnings of judgment are recounted for us here, but with a little bit of a different sort of flair. And the problem that I think we see in these verses is the problem of sins that persist from generation to generation because of nurture, because of observation, because if the parents are idolatrous, it's more than likely that the children are going to be idolatrous as well. There's the problem of the sin, the sin of idolatry and how that is passed on, but also there is the reality of judgment. And if abominations, if idolatrous things are passed on, if it's going from generation to generation, we see that Yahweh is going to cut it off. There's not going to be a next generation if idolatry persists in Israel. And that's exactly what we see in verses 10 through 17. We see how Yahweh indicates how abominable Israel is and what that brings. How wicked and abhorrent they have become in their idolatry as they've worshipped the Baals, as they've worshipped idols rather than the true and living God. And what's going to happen to them is they're going to be childless. There's going to be no more generations. And also they're going to be wanderers. They're going to go from wilderness to wilderness because they did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. So the main idea is how abominable Israel is and how there are going to be no children for the abominable. And we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see how bereaving idolatry is in verses 10 through 14. 
And then secondly, we'll see how lonely idolatry is in verses 15 through 17. So how bereaving idolatry is, and then how lonely idolatry is. So let's first look at how bereaving idolatry is in verses 10 through 14. And we did see last time in the prophet Hosea how Israel rejoiced, but their rejoicing indicated their ignorance. And so Yahweh is going to exclude them from his house. He's going to kick them out of the land. But then now we come to Yahweh speaking. Now we come to divine speech. Yes, Yahweh speaks to the prophet. But what we see in verses 10 through 13 and 15 through and 16 is Yahweh himself speaking. It is divine speech. And notice we see Yahweh's founding of Israel. She was like grapes in the wilderness, according to verse 10. We see that, verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. And so we're reminded by way of imagery. It's as though a man is wandering in a barren land, a barren wilderness, but he comes across some grapes. He comes across this oasis. He comes across uh, fig trees in its fruitful seasons. He comes to a, and finds a precious thing. Now we know Israel was not precious in and of itself, but nonetheless, when God chose her, when God brought her up out of the land of Egypt, when God was with her in the wilderness, it was a blessed thing. And even too, when they first come up out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, aside from their whining and complaining, and aside from the time they worshiped at the golden calf, things are pretty okay. Things seem to be going pretty well. And then certainly we have that problem when they look into the land and the first generation freaks out. Only Caleb and Joshua are like, no, we got this. The Lord is with us. And then that first generation had to wander. But even then the Lord was with them. The Lord was with that second generation as well. That second generation did fairly good as they entered into that promised land. But it's a reminder of the beginning. It's a reminder of what Yahweh did for them. It's a reminder of his goodness towards them, his kindness, his love, and how he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. This language of finding, this language of helping is used in Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses when Moses says, he found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. And certainly throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we see even though it's a wandering, even though the wandering is judgment, God provides for them. God is with them. God walks with them and they never lacked anything as they were in the wilderness, that second generation. So this is a kind reminder. This is meant to be a blessed reminder what Yahweh had done for them. Gill says, but the simile may serve to express the great and unmerited love of God to his people who are as agreeable to him as grapes in the wilderness to a thirsty traveler and in whom he takes great delight and complacency, notwithstanding all their sinfulness and unworthiness and bestows abundance of grace upon them and makes them like clusters of grapes indeed. And such were many of the Jewish fathers and who are here intended even the people of Israel brought out of Egypt into the wilderness of Arabia, through which they traveled to Canaan. Here the Lord found them, took notice and care of them, provided for them and protected them, and gave them many tokens of his love and affection. 
So he's thinking about what he did. He's he's, uh, recalling what happened at the first time he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. But then things change, don't they? One word one of the commentators used was the word nostalgia. Although in this case, the thing that uh, that we like, the thing that we remember fondly, rather than remembering it fondly, it's now been tainted. Rather, the thing that we grew up loving and appreciated, we come to it again and we see it's burning rather than that thing that we once remembered. That's how serious idolatry is, isn't it? This whole thing is meant to teach us about how serious idolatry is, even with the jarring language that we are going to see as we go through. So he talks about this good time, this blessed time, this being found, this choice grape in the wilderness. But notice how quickly they bring grief to Yahweh. Notice how quickly Israel engages in abominations, yes, with the golden calf, but also another time in their history is recalled, but they went to Baal uh, Baal Peor, and they separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing that they loved. This is in Numbers chapter 25. As the people engaged in harlotry, the people engaged in wicked worship, this is where we see Phineas throw that spear through the Midianite woman and the Israelite man to atone for the people because the people were doing abominable things. And what he's tr- going to argue, what he's trying to argue is that the spirit of Baal Peor remains. The people are vile. The people are wicked. The people continue to do vile and awful things. And Hosea has recounted various uh, uh, events and incidences in the life of Israel. Some positive, like the Exodus, but some negative. We saw in verse 9 that unsavory situation at Gibeah when Israel had descended and become much like Sodom and Gomorrah after they wanted to know the Levite and his, the Levite and the man in Gibeah. Instead, the concubine was given and she was killed and dismembered and spread throughout the land. Israel had descended so far. They had become like the nations around them. And what we see at Baal Peor, they separated themselves. They consecrated themselves. They were supposed to be consecrated to God. They were supposed to be separated to God. They were supposed to do what God had said of them to be different than all the nations around them. Now they're consecrating themselves to Baal. They're consecrating themselves to shame. Israel is meant to be this choice vine, this choice grape, but in reality, she becomes like a vineyard that needs to be raised, a vineyard that needs to be taken down because thorns have grown in her. And what's interesting is in Isaiah 5, there is that their vineyard songs in Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27. And it's no doubt that when Jesus uh, speaks of the parable of the vine dressers, He has those vineyard songs in mind. And those vineyard songs talk about how vile Israel has become, how vile Judah has become, and how God is, rather than bearing good fruit, God is going to remove her. Like Judah, like Israel during Jesus' time, so too is Israel in the time of Hosea. So was Israel in the time of Baal Peor. They separate themselves to that Shame. That's in Numbers 25. And notice they themselves become an abomination, like the thing that they loved. What you worship is what you become. What you worship, whatever is your idol, that is what you become. You love money, 
you become fleeting. You love food, you become whatever. You become certain things. We are what we eat, so to speak. And the same thing is true when it comes to idolatry. These things that the, the Midianites and the Moabites were doing was an abomination. It was an abhorrent thing. It was a vile thing. When I say an abomination, I don't mean something that's gigantic. I mean something that is loathsome. Something that you look at and you want to spit. Something that you look at and you want to throw up. It is an abomination. And that's exactly what Israel is doing. That's how vile idolatry is. And this word for abomination is actually not used very often in scriptures, but it is used in one place we probably know pretty well. Daniel 9 and Daniel 11. The abomination that leads to desolation. Those vile, abhorrent things that then lead to the desolation of a people. That is rooted in Leviticus. That is rooted in the curses in Deuteronomy. So much so that when Jesus is unpacking the Olivet Discourse, what it means that the temple is going to be destroyed. Yes, Luke tells us that the abominable things in the temple are what? Roman soldiers, abominable things in the house of God. But we cannot miss the fact that abominations are already occurring in the house of God. Don't forget that before Jesus starts the Olivet Discourse, he what? Turns the tables. Because Israel has always been a stiff-necked people. Israel has always been an idolatrous, vile, wretched people according to the terms of the Old Covenant. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene, I'm going to tear down this temple. I'm doing away with the old that the new might come in. He's going to destroy that temple and rebuild it in three days in what? His body. He's bringing in the new covenant. The old covenant is obsolete. The old covenant cannot and has never been a way of salvation because Israel has engaged in abominations that lead to desolation. Israel has become an abomination like the thing that they loved. The influence of Baal was great. The influence of the nations were great. This is why Moses warned them and they become what they love. What they worship is what they have become. They became an abomination like the thing that they loved. And so Yahweh then brings it home. He brings a contemporary application to the people in Ephraim, to the people in the north. Verse 11. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. Ephraim is going to try and spread its glory. Israel is going to try to unshackle themselves. Perhaps the people during the time of Baal, Peor, perhaps the people during the time of Hosea said, ah, the law of God is just too binding. We want to be free. We want to do whatever we sort of want to do. We want to spread our glory to the ends of the earth. Remember, Israel was supposed to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. They didn't do that, did they? Remember, Adam was supposed to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. He doesn't do that, does he? Thanks be to God, to Jesus Christ, who is spreading his glory to the ends of the earth. But Israel does not do that thing. And so they're thinking, we're just going to fly away. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to increase as a nation. But as we see, their abominations do lead to desolation. In verses 11 through 14. 
And notice, this is, some of this stuff is tough. I don't deny that some of this stuff is very hard, but the language is meant to jar us awake, isn't it? That's why this tough language is used, because people get complacent. We, get, we become uh, uh, um, happy in our easiness. We become happy and complacent in our lives, and sometimes you don't recognize the idolatry that is seeping in, and so we need a bit of a jarring reminder. And so Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird, but what's going to happen is God is not going to let it happen. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. There's going to be no children. There's going to be dead children. There's going to be a cutting off of idolatry with the next generation. So much so that the way to cut off idolatry is to make sure the idolatrous people never have any more children. So Ephraim thinks they're going to spread their glory, their fame, their fortune, whatever they have, bail to the ends of the earth, but God is going to make sure that doesn't happen. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. And yet they're still going to try and raise children, verse 12, though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. These are the words of the Lord. These are the words of Yahweh. Again, it's teaching us how vile and awful and wicked idolatry is, so much so that it needs to be cut off by the removing of children. Israel is going to try to rear their children. They're going to try their, to raise their children, but this wickedness, this perpetuation of idolatry cannot continue. See how tough this text is to go through? See how tough this text is in light of what is going on around the world, what is going on in Israel and Gaza today? But we need to understand, under old covenant terms, how vile and is, uh, wicked Israel was. Obviously, we're not coming, calling for the massacre of people and the massacre of babies. However, see how serious idolatry is. Though they bring up their children, I will bring them down. I will cut off their seed. They shall have no more. I will bereave them to the last man. So they're going to have no children. They're going to have dead children. Notice they're going to have no Yahweh. Verse 12, uh, verse 12 yes, woe to them when I depart from them. God is no longer going to be their shield. God is no longer going to be their exceedingly great reward. God is no longer going to be with them. He is going to depart from them. And when he departs from them, they have no protection. So no children, dead children, and no Yahweh. But also know as, uh, look as well, there's going to be no luxury. There's going to be no money. There's going to be no prosperity. They're, that's their God, really. That's what they want. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre. Israel has become no better than that pagan nation. And Tyre was known for its lushness. Tyre was known for its riches. And Israel was like her, planted in a pleasant place. She was like her and had multa many things, but she'd also become like her and the fact that she engaged in idolatrous things. And so what's going to happen, verse 12, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. Children, no children, no children. I will bereave them, and once again, I will bring out his children to the murderer. Notice how parents teach their children idolatrous things or just prepping their children for the slaughter in Israel. That's what it is, isn't it? People are teaching their kids idolatrous and vile things in Israel, but they're just preparing them for Assyria. And Assyria is coming. And Assyria to come and bring them and slaughter them to end 
the wickedness that goes on, which is what God does in 722 B.C. And then we have an interesting interjection here, or a prayer, verse 14, that comes from the lips of Hosea. And notice he kind of stammers a little bit. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? <laughs> he's kind of questioning as he prays because he sees the seriousness of it. He's lived as that image of it with Gomer. Lord, what will you give them? Lord, what will you give them? What will you give them? Give them, what will you give them? I don't know. And look what he says. Boy, this would be a tough prayer to pray at the dinner table. Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Once again, children are in view here. Give them that bereaved womb, a womb that cannot conceive. And if they should conceive, make it so they have no nourishment so they don't live. That is one of the harshest things I think I've read today. Not that I read a lot of harsh things on Sunday, but that is a tough thing to deal with. That is a tough thing to consider. This is a tough message, but yet we go book by book. Make it so that they never have children. There are other tough passages, brethren, in the Psalms. Psalm 137 comes to mind. As the psalmist is crying out and praying and longing for Israel, but also as he longs for Israel in Babylon, he wants his enemies to be no more. So much so that the last verse of that psalm says, blessed is he who dashes their little ones to pieces. Brethren, that's a tough text for us as well. But again, you understand. We have to understand how vile idolatry is. So much so that it might require the dashing of little ones to pieces. It's not meant to be vengeful, but we just don't want idolatry to continue, do we? And Israel should not have idolatry continue. And Yahweh is going to cut it off. And it's also perhaps, too, what we see in verse 14 is a reversal of the blessing given to Joseph in Genesis 49. Remember, Ephraim is one of the sons of Joseph. Remember, Joseph gets the double portion. He gets two, so that's why we have Ephraim and Manasseh. He gets two, and so Ephraim is the dominant tribe in the north. But we see the last words of Jacob to his sons, and what he says about Joseph talks about blessing. A fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well, his branches over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you. And by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. In Hosea, we continue that theme of reversal. He's reversing the blessings that God has given to Israel. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? A miscarrying womb and dry breasts. And what this all is meant to teach us is that idolatry only leads to desolation. Idolatry only leads to bereavement. Idolatry only leads to sadness and sorrow. Idolatry only leads to misery. That's why we call sinners. That's why we say if you're an unbeliever that you are in your sin and you are idolatrous and you love your idols more than God. And look where it leads. Death and destruction. Look where it could lead your children. Death and destruction. 
But there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. That's why we say turn from your idols to the true and living God through faith in Jesus Christ. Smash your idols in the cross of Christ. Smash your idols and come to Jesus and believe upon him and you shall be saved. Idolatry is vile. And brethren, as believers with remaining corruption who are forgiven and all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, but with our remaining corruption, we struggle with idolatry. We struggle with love of self. We struggle with love of ease. We struggle with love of notoriety. We struggle with love of money, love of sex. We struggle with the love of children. I love my children, but can children be an idol? Good goods, bad gods. Can work, work is a good thing. Can work be an idol? Absolutely. All those things can be idols. We like to think, uh, we like to think that, and even to, and especially that idea of self, this, uh, that is where idolatry leads to the most, is it comes from our desires to promote ourselves more than anybody else. We get offended all the time when people say things to us. We get upset because we think we're right all the time. We, get, uh, we, we like to think that our opinion matters, so we insert ourselves into situations that we ought not to, dear brethren. Brethren, we are so impressed with ourselves that we need God's goodness to remind us and God's kindness to remind us about how a wicked idolatry is, isn't it? God is good to remind us of this, isn't he? God is good to teach us of this. God is good to say, here's how vile and wicked idolatry is. Here is what your sin deserves. It is loathsome. But there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. The loathsomeness, the vileness for the child of God is meant to magnify what Christ has done for us. When we consider that vile thing and we consider what Jesus does. It's meant to magnify what he has done for us. It's, uh, it's meant to cause us and remind us that we are forgiven in him. And if we struggle with idolatry, which we all do, we can smash that idol at the foot of Christ. There is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. You struggle with this idol, say, Lord, I'm struggling with this thing. I'm struggling with my own self-importance. Please humble me. And then things happen that will very much humble you and I that we don't like to go through. But God humbles us with certain situations. We, are, we learn humility in difficult moments. But God is good to remind us and to correct us and to guide us because certainly no discipline seems pleasurable in the moment, but it does issue forth the fruits of righteousness, doesn't it? And if God is our Father, he will discipline us. He will remove things from us. He will bring things upon us. He will answer our prayers according to his will or not answer our prayers for our good. But idolatry is serious. It is bereaving. It leads to desolation. Cast your idols upon Christ. Cast your idols at the foot of Christ and look to him by faith. So that is how bereaving idolatry is. Let's then look secondly about at how lonely idolatry is. Verses 15 through 17. And notice we see a lonely, fruitless people, verses 15 through 16. We see a hated people. In verse 15, all their wickedness is in Gilgal. Now, there is the place of Gilgal in Joshua 4 and 5, when the people enter into the land of Canaan for the first time. We see covenant renewal happen there, but then we see idols there in Judges 3, so things aren't going so well by the time Judges 3 arrives 
But perhaps Gilgal mentioned here is referring to a place in the northern kingdom. And it was a place notorious for their abominations, that place that is known where vile things happen. It's mentioned in Amos 4, it's mentioned in Hosea 4, it's mentioned in Hosea 12 as well as the place where vile things occurred. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. And notice we see Yahweh's hatred and abhorrence of their sin there. For there I hated them. And notice we see once again that this idea of God hates the sin, not the sinner, is not biblical. God hates them. And with what we saw in verse 10, they became an abomination. They became an abominable thing in the sight of the Lord. We saw that in Psalm 7. God is angry with the wicked every day. We saw it in Psalm 5 as well. God hates them because God hates sin. God hates abhorrent things. God hates vile things. Cyril of Alexandria says, if we love to be with God, then honor the one who called and chose us and plucked us from this worldly condition as if from a thorny desert like a bunch of grapes. That is attractive. We shall preserve unbroken our union with him, which is clearly of a spiritual kind. If on the other hand, there is some inclination to what is ugly and what offends him, we shall be no different from the nations. We shall be loved ones who became objects of loathing and duly hated. He's talking about the seriousness of idolatry, but there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ, but there's seriousness for there I hated them. Notice, because of their evil deeds, because of their wickedness, notice, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. That is marriage-type language. That is driving the wife from the house, driving the wife from the place where they live because of how vile she has become and how vile she is. I will drive them out. I will love them no more. I will love them no more. And we know one of the reasons why is because of the leadership in Israel. They are a fruitless people, a lonely people, a hated people, partly in because of themselves, but also because of the leaders. Verses 15 and 16, all their princes are rebellious. All their princes are rebellious. They have not led the people. They have not guided the people. They have not help the people along. Instead, they've guided them into things that are vile and wicked and wretched. And what's going to happen is Israel is going to be like that tree that is not planted by living waters. Going to be like that tree that is struck, the root is broken, the root can no longer take in nutrients, and therefore there's going to be no fruit. Ephraim is stricken. The root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Not, they shall bear no fruit in righteousness, and they shall bear no more children. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. No more children, no more children, no more children, no more children. Because of how vile sin and idolatry is. And we love little children, but we must recognize that little children are little sinners still, aren't they? They are little, little, little sinners. And that's why we need to preach the gospel to them that they might be saved. From my womb in sin, my mother conceived me, is what David says in Psalm 51. But one of the saddest things for a parent, I think, 
is when you look at that little kid who says goo goo and gaga and daddy and Bible and drops the Bible in every sermon, and then later on in their life, maybe they don't go the way you think they should. And you're looking at that picture and then you see their life now. That's kind of what's happened in Israel, hasn't it? That's kind of what's going on. We see Israel in their first stage, they're like grapes in the wilderness, but as they've grown up, we see that they've gone to Baal Peor and they've become an abominable thing. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. I thought Pastor Naftali Ogalo's reminder was good last week. We preach book by book. You can't avoid this stuff uh, when you go book by book. He gave some great reminders, I thought, last week, you know, with, you know, what we do, what we're about, and I appreciate that very much. But yeah, we go book by book, and we can't avoid it. I can't just skip over verses 10 through 17, but we must deal with it in full force. We must deal with it head on, because we must deal with how vile idolatry is and be watchful against it, to keep our minds on the things of God, to cast our burdens upon Christ, to come before him, to ever be watchful. That is the thrust and purpose. It's to remind us of how serious these things really are. And notice what happens to the people in verse 17. My God will cast them away because they did not obey him. And they shall be wanderers among the nations. A wandering people, a cast out people is in Leviticus 26. And notice how we go from wilderness to wandering. We go from the people in the wilderness with no home to the people have come into the land. They've done vile things for a long period of time. And now they're kicked out of the land again. From wandering to wandering, from wilderness to wilderness, from exile to exile, from captivity to captivity. Again, that reversal, we've seen that reversal in Hosea of going back to Egypt, going back to the place of captivity. How often have we seen this in the prophet Hosea? So idolatry is lonely. Idolatry is terrifying. Idolatry is awful, and that's why idolatry must be destroyed. It's either destroyed in Christ, isn't it? or it's destroyed, or I guess it's punished forever. And thankfully for the Christian, as we deal with our own remaining corruption, as we see idolatry around the world, one comforting thing is what? Idolatry is going to end, isn't it? Christ's finished work is sufficient. The the remaining corruption that we have will one day stop. Isn't that a glorious thought? We've tasted in part now, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but yet we still struggle and we still have the things of the flesh that we war against. But one day that shall be no more. One day the vileness and wickedness of what we see around the world shall stop. And we all want it to stop. We all want it to end. We all want it to be no more. This is meant to be a comfort for us that idolatry is going to end and it shall be gone one day. And in the meantime, what do we do as we navigate this land? We meditate on what is good. John McKay says, by clinging to what is good, however, and exposing ourselves to the truth, our tendency to absorb and reflect what surrounds us may be employed beneficially. Beholding the glory of the Lord promotes transformation from glory to glory, or to put it in another way, according to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, 
Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. And as we live in this world, and as, as we have to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil, let's be honest, we need to meditate on the things that are good. We need to be in church morning and evening. I know we harp on that a lot. I know I say you should be in church morning and evening. At the very least, if you live far away, please try to tune in. Throughout the centuries, Christians gathered morning and evening. And it's a travesty that that has been lost in our modern times. But one of the reasons I say that, one of the reasons I exhort is because I don't know how people can get through the week without two, without two sermons. I don't know how I can, can get through the week without two, without two, uh, being filled twice. Or maybe we should say it's one meal, and if you come morning, you have half the meal, and you come in the evening, it's the other half of the meal, because the world is filled with devils. We come in an hour in the morning, an hour and a half, two hours if Pastor Butler's here, and then two hours in the evening, possibly. Or I guess if it's Lloyd-Jones, it'd be three hours, but that's okay. Whatever time it is, it's really not that long in the week, is it? We do our quiet time, we do our devotions, but most of the time we are not in the Word of God, right? And so we need to be in it to help us as we have to fight our own sins and then we have to read what's going on and as we have to deal with the temptations that come from the world, as we have to deal with the devil, we need to be filled by God's word. How can we get through the week without being fed? How can we get through the week without God's word? Because this world is filled with devils and we have much remaining corruption. Now, a lot of hard stuff today. I'm going to close with a bit of encouragement, hopefully. But one of the blessings of the new covenant is a reversal of everything we've read. The curse of the old covenant is childlessness and fruitlessness. What's the blessings of the new covenant? Children who bear fruit. Children who've been born of God. Children who are part of that true vine who is Jesus Christ and we bear fruit in him. And we must remember that all we have, the salvation that we have, is a gift that comes from Jesus Christ. We are undeserving of everything that we have received from him, and that should cause us to praise him all the more. Because if you remember what is said in Hosea 2, verses 14 and 15, and this is where we'll close. Looking ahead to the new covenant era, when Christ would come, notice the promise. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her and will give her her vineyards from there. In the valley of Achor as a door of hope, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And this happens because of Jesus Christ. He is the true vine. We are his children and we grow in him. Well, let us pray. <clears> Our <throat> Lord, our God, we know that there are difficult things in your word, yet they teach us important things concerning uh, who we are, concerning who you are, and concerning uh, where our salvation lies. 
And we know that this world is filled with devils. We know that this world is filled with uh, difficult things. We know that we have our own remaining corruptions. And, and so help us to understand the, the seriousness of sin. We don't truly grasp it. We don't truly understand it, O oh Lord. But help us to understand it just a little bit more. And as we understand it a little bit more, help us to praise you all the more as we consider our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his perfect life that he lived. And thank you for his perfect sacrifice. Thank you that you are a good God who saves wretched sinners like us. You're the one who allures your people. You're the one who brings them into the wilderness. You're the one who speaks comfort and you bring us out of that wilderness. And you've given us so many blessings. We are your vineyard. Christ is that true vine and we are in him. We pray that as your people, as your children, that we would bear fruit becoming of you and that you would help us to see where idolatry leads, that we would share it with, uh, share the gospel with others, share the seriousness of idolatry with others, that you might save them, you might work in them and show them their sin and show them their need for Christ the Lord. So thank you for the hard things that you speak to us in your word. Thank you for the things that you uh, that your word says, even the difficult passages. Help us to be uplifted, knowing about what Christ has done, but help us to be watchful against our own idols. And we're thankful we can do so by your spirit. And we pray that you'd help us as we go into the world. Give us the strength that we need, we pray. In the name of Christ.